So just by a show of hands, how many folks are coming for homecoming this week? All right. Good deal. I hope you guys are excited about it, because I am absolutely excited about it. And, and, you know, we've been talking about it for a really long time, right? It's been a long time in coming. And, uh, and we've kind of been on this sermon series for a while, too. And, you know, we've really covered a lot of ground over this last 15 weeks in our study through Paul's letter to the Romans, haven't we? And, and chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we have seen in this wonderful letter the truth of humanity's condition. We've seen the truth of our, our spiritual treason, basically, against the, the creator whose existence and love, Paul tells us, are indelibly stamped on the whole world around us. But we also find in the pages of this letter, Christ's work on Calvary to restore that broken relationship to the maker that you and I have betrayed. So on the one hand, Romans shows us how bad we really are, which is a needed truth. And on the other hand, it shows us just how loved we are and reveals that perfect balance between God's righteous judgment and his relentless love for you and me in Jesus Christ. John Chrysostom said, Paul's letter to the Romans is unquestionably the fullest, deepest compendium of all sacred foundational truths. So meaning that you'll find gospel truths in every book of the Bible, but that the book of Romans brings all the significance of the old covenant history into the new covenant revelation. And it speaks to us on, on everything from human relationships to predestination and, and all kinds of theology in between and leads us into God's mission to reach the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, one author has said that the depths of knowledge, the depths of love, the depths of living are all contained in these 16 chapters of Romans. But then you actually get to the 16th chapter. And if you've, if you've been reading ahead, and we're going to read it here in just a minute, along with this long list of names of, of people that you don't know, you may be tempted to tune out. But instead, I want you to keep in mind, yeah, I don't want to see that when I look out there. You, you may be tempted to tune out, but I want you to keep Paul's words in mind to Timothy when he said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And that includes these passages that I'm about to read to you, so no sleeping. And, and what we're going to read is Paul closing out this letter and his greeting to his friends in Rome. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Paul writes, I commend to you our dear sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church of Centrea. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to so many, and especially to me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I'm thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Also give my greeting to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epinetus. He was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. Give my greetings to Mary, who has worked so hard for your benefit. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who were in prison with me. They're highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. 
Greet Apelles, a good man whom Christ approves, and give my greeting to the believers from the house of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet the Lord's people from the household of Narcissus. Send my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's workers, and to dear Persis, who has worked so hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who has become a mother to me. Give my greetings to Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who meet with them. Give my greetings to Philologus, Julia, Neresis, and his sister, and to Olympus and all the believers who meet with them. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. All the churches of Christ here send their greetings. Anybody sleeping? So, you know, Paul is, <laughs> Paul is not deliberately teaching here. Rather, he's, he's greeting friends in the Roman church, and he's sending greetings from the folks who were with him at the church in Corinth. And before you're tempted to say, okay, pastor, but so what? Remember that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these greetings. So even though you have to kind of dig through it a bit, when you do, you come up with some nuggets that really make that reading work. And I want to share those with you. Because actually what we have here is a snapshot of these two churches that gives us a model of what our church should be like. And the individuals who are greeted here in this letter can motivate and encourage each of us to be all that God wants us to be. Now, obviously, I'm not going to touch on, on every name or we'd be here till homecoming. But what we can do is take kind of a bird's eye view of the themes that Paul is trying to get across to us. and. I think the overarching thing that we can really learn from all of this is that the church, with a capital C, not just this individual church, but the church as a whole, is made up of ordinary people from different backgrounds who know the Lord, who are growing in their knowledge and service of him, and who genuinely love one another as a family. That sounds a whole lot like us here, doesn't it? And you know, a lot of times when you when you read these names and about these men and women in the Bible, we have a tendency to kind of to put them up on a pedestal, but you have to remember that they were real people. They were everyday people. Some of them were slaves. Some of them were blue-collar workers. Some of them were solidly middle class. Some were very wealthy. Some of the people were men, but, you know, Paul also mentions a number of women. And the thing that united them, that kind of common thread that bound them all together is found in a phrase that Paul repeats 11 times, if you were paying attention, 11 times. And he says that these folks were either in the Lord or in Christ. Synonymously, he's saying. 11 times he repeated that in his greeting. He asked the Romans to receive Phoebe in the Lord. He commends Priscilla and Aquila as his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He says, Andronicus and Juniah were in Christ before me. And he goes down this list in that same vein. And it's not a surprise, really, that Paul puts so much emphasis on this, because as we've seen through this whole study in Romans, that being in Christ through faith is the most important label that can describe someone. Being in Christ through faith is the most important label that can describe someone. Remember back in Romans 8, Paul started out by writing, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And if you remember, he ends that chapter by saying that there is nothing that shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
meaning that whether you're, you're wealthy or poor or ordinary or important, whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, no matter what your background, the gift of eternal life and the spiritual blessings that Christ offers are ours in him, if, if we trust in him by faith as our Lord and Savior. A Savior whose glorious gospel saves individual ordinary people from every walk of life and places them together in the family of God. A family of people who are, are growing in their knowledge of the Lord through his word, through the preaching of sound doctrine, and through the right administration of the sacraments. But you know, that doesn't happen in every Christian gathering, does it? One author has said that churches, churches do not suffer from a want of men to preach. They suffer from a want of men who preach sound theological content. And he continues, today preaching is still expected to be lofty and inspiring, but rarely is it filled with weighty theology. He says, unfortunately, most preach with a mind toward moving their people to dance rather than moving people to think big about God, about his person and his purposes. Consequently, we have in a great many churches no preaching at all. Instead, we have an exhortation of the preacher, but not of the Bible or of the focus of the Bible, which is Jesus Christ, end quote. You know, but someone may say, now, now really, Pastor, couldn't, couldn't we just skip all that heavy theology stuff? I mean, couldn't we just concentrate on preaching motivational themes and, and life application topics? Why, why do we have to talk about theology and, and doctrine? I mean, don't we have enough division in the world already? Couldn't we just preach about God's love and, and talk about social justice issues and encourage each other to reach that next level of, of success in this world and, and spiritually? And, you know, there's nothing really wrong with those themes per se, but the simple answer is, brothers and sisters, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. What we believe about Jesus matters. He made real pronouncements about himself and about what he came to do. And, and he called real men to be his disciples. Real men who in turn inspired others to teach what God would have us to know about this Jesus that we say we believe in. Brothers and sisters, doctrine matters. Because anytime we say anything about Jesus, we're making a doctrinal statement. And if theology didn't matter, the Bible wouldn't be so full of it. Right? Concepts like justification and predestination and sanctification and election are important, and not just for theology professors and seminary students. So, you know, I think it's really significant that although Romans is the most doctrinally soaked letter in the New Testament, it was written to help ordinary, everyday people like me like us. Commentator Leon Morris said, Romans was a letter to real people, and as far as we can see, to ordinary people. It wasn't written to professional theologians, although through the century scholars have found this epistle a happy hunting ground. It was written to the common man, many of them uneducated slaves, to help them know Christ and to grow in their walk with him. But, you know, in our day, we've almost shoved doctrine to the side because supposedly it's either too divisive, not topical enough, or, or maybe just too dull, right? too boring. But, you know, Paul would have disagreed strongly with that because, as we've already seen, he spends 11 chapters that we've gone through together laying this sound doctrinal foundation before he ever gets around to the practical part of the letter, and all the while knowing that it was going to be shared with some people among that Roman congregation who couldn't even read. 
So even though it takes some mental effort to grapple with Paul's profound thoughts here, the truth is it's well worth the work. Well worth the work. And actually, you know, that's the next section of this scripture really reveals, and that is that the church is made up of people who work together in the kingdom. Right? Paul repeatedly mentions how these people were involved in serving the Lord. Remember, he started out this letter, this section, by writing a reference for a woman named Phoebe, a woman who he says was a, a servant or a deacon of the church in Centrea, which is a, a port city in Corinth. Now, most scholars think she was probably a wealthy business, a woman who may probably have had a reason, a business reason to travel to the capital of the empire, and that she was probably the one who actually delivered this letter with her to the church in Rome from Paul a letter which, if she had been discovered with, very probably could have impacted her relationships with the other merchants and put her into direct opposition with the authorities. But, you know, she took the job of taking this important letter, and she took the risk that came with it. Paul also mentions Priscilla and Aquila, husband-wife team, who he called my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. Paul had met these two in, in Corinth, where they had all worked together as tent makers after having been forced to, to leave Rome when Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from the city. And they later accompanied Paul to Ephesus, and now they're back in Rome. But, you know, wherever these two went, wherever this couple went, their hearts were for building up the church. And, you know, you husbands and wives, us husbands and wives here at FCC, we can do that too. You know, we can find that great joy in sharing the work of the Lord together and in encouraging each other, encouraging husband and wife in his service. You know, because I can't tell you how blessed it is for me to have a, a wife that's such a vital part of ministry in so many ways, right? I mean, just in so many ways. Some, of the, some are visible and some aren't. Whether it's, you know, how, how much time she takes in greeting folks before the service on Sunday mornings or, or just being supportive and understanding of a work schedule that can change with a phone call. And so I appreciate her for that. But we are just together, are so blessed and so privileged to be part of Christ's service together. And you can do that too. You don't have to be in vocational ministry to do that. You don't have to head a committee to make a difference. And the beauty of it is you can do it while you're spending time together working in the kingdom. Unless you don't like spending time together, then that's awkward. Right? But you can be together, serving together in Christ's kingdom and being together as a couple. Now, that's addressed to you couples, but that doesn't mean you single folks out there are off the hook. Because Paul also mentions, he mentions Mary, who he says has worked so hard for you. He mentions Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. He, he wrote about Tryphena and Tryphosa, probably twin sisters whose names mean delicate and dainty. But evidently they weren't so fragile because Paul says they were workers in the Lord. And then there's Persis, a, another woman who he says worked hard for the Lord. And, and Timothy, who he calls my fellow worker. So you see, married or single or, or widowed or, or whatever, there shouldn't be any bench warmers in the kingdom of Christ. Every believer has been given at least one spiritual gift that he or she can use in the service of the Lord. Remember back in chapter 12, Paul said, don't just pretend to love others, really love. Hate what's wrong, hold on to what's good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. And I'm so glad that we have that here. There's just, just been just an incredible, incredible enthusiasm for 
folks to volunteer in this congregation, and I am so grateful for all of you. But Paul is telling us, he's saying here, okay, so the church is made up of, of ordinary people who are in Christ. These ordinary people are growing to know the Lord through sound doctrine, like this epistle to the Romans. And they're deepening their relationships with each other and, and being hospitable and, and helpful to each other as a family. And they're doing all of that, working hard together in the Lord. But one thing that might be easy to overlook as we're going through this process is that these ordinary Christ-following, loving, hardworking people are both male and female. We've got to keep that in mind. The church is made up of both men and women who serve the Lord, but in different roles and capacities. And I don't want us to miss the fact that in a male-dominated culture like Paul lived in, the male-dominated culture of his day, it's significant that Paul mentions seven women by name, plus Rufus's mother and Nerissa's sister as workers in the church. So obviously, Paul believed that women have an important role to play in serving the Lord, especially when you consider that he entrusted probably the only copy of this precious letter to the Romans to a woman, to Phoebe, to make it safely to Rome. So the point is that women can and should have significant ministries in the local church and in the cause of world missions. And let's face it, guys, where would most churches be without women? Can I get an amen to that? Right? Where would most churches be without women? Some of the most active, productive, hardworking folks in this fellowship are women. And almost all of us, and especially me, have been, have been blessed by mothers and grandmothers of faith or, or women missionaries or, or women Sunday school teachers or, or women Good News Club teachers. And we could just go on and on and list them who have taught us the word of God and the ways of Christ. Paul is saying that women should be involved in all kinds of ministries in the church. He leaves just one exception that's clear from his writings, that the role of filling the office of pastor or teaching elder uh, is limited to men. Not because men are better or smarter or anything else. In fact, if you really think about it, the church is the ultimate equalizer. If you really want to check, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free male, or female, you are all one in Jesus Christ. Meaning that there's no such thing as God-sanctioned male superiority or, or gender bias or racism because the Bible knows no such thing. But, but there are clearly defined roles in the church and, and in the family, so don't kill the messenger. If you don't happen to agree with me, you can argue with God about it when you get to heaven. Right? But, but speaking of family, this family of God, now that Paul has covered couples and, and singles and men and women, in his writing here in chapter 13, he tells us that the church is made up of whole families that have come to faith in Christ through the gospel, reminding us that the church is made up of ordinary people from diverse backgrounds who become a genuine family and sometimes actually become closer with each other than we do with our blood relations. And because of that, we are open and welcoming and compassionate toward one another, whether we're blood or not. Like when Paul mentions uh, two households here, which referred really to both the actual family and to their servants, plus Rufus' mother, Nerissa's sister. So he's, he's talking about family units, and we have so many beautiful families here in the church, not just couples and singles. And then he spoke of Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, he said they opened not just their hearts to their fellow Christians, but they actually opened their family home, their family home to serve as a church. Because if you remember, Congregations 
in the day that Paul was writing didn't have a great facility like we have here together in, on the Lord's Day. And for at least the first two centuries, churches met in private homes. And because of that, these smaller fellowships where everybody knew each other intimately fostered uh, an accountability and a genuine affection within the group that really made them more of a family than their own biological family. A family like I'm so grateful that we have here. A family of ordinary people doing extraordinary things for God. As you know, none of the people listed here in Romans 16 were famous or, or powerful in the world's eyes. None of them had any idea that their names would be enshrined in scriptures for, for millions of Christians to read over thousands of years and down through the centuries. They just lived out their faith day by day. And, and even though our names are never going to be in Scripture, even though none of us will probably ever be recognized or remembered by the world, God knows your name. God knows your name. And you're important to him. He sent his son to rescue you from sin and judgment, and he has given you an important role to play in his kingdom and in this fellowship. Right? Maybe just to be a loving homemaker and to rear your children to follow Christ. It may be to uh, be a godly example of a husband or a father or a grandfather. It may be serving in some capacity in the local church or in the cause of world missions. Or you know what? It may just be to tell your neighbor the good news of Jesus Christ and to explain to them how they can have their sins forgiven too. But, you know, whatever your gift, whatever your calling, look for ways today to serve the Lord just as these people these people that Paul says are the church. Because remember, we don't go to church. We are the church, right? We don't go to church. We are the church. And there is a place here for everyone because nobody is a nobody in the family of God. Everyone has a place. And as, as Paul goes through these lists of names, he's trying to let people know you're not anonymous. If, if you, you're at home and, and, and you feel lonely and you start to feel like you have nobody around you, you're not anonymous. God knows your name and he is working in and through you, and I want to let you know here, whether you're a, a couple or a single or, or a guy or a gal, God is saying, I am using you to build my church, and you're not anonymous. You are never a number, never a number to the one that matters the most, and you are never a number to this fellowship either, because you are someone that we count on and who we are committed to, committed to discipling you, committed to helping you grow committed to letting you use your gifts and talents, and, and just saying to every person here, we are so glad that you are a part of this family of God. Amen? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we're just so grateful, Lord, that you have brought us together as a family in this place. I thank you, Lord, for the spirit of love and, and fellowship and joy that we have when we gather together here. We ask, Father, you continue to disperse any divisions among us, and we just ask that, Lord, so that with one voice and with one song we may sing the joy of your name and in thanksgiving for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.